You are listening to a download from Yale University Press. For more information, go to the website www.yalebooks.com. Hello, and welcome back to the Yale Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and I'm glad to be back, though I wish it were warmer. In this brand new episode, I'll be interviewing Michael Takeff about his oral history of Bill Clinton, A Complicated Man, the life of Bill Clinton as told by those who know him. I'll also be telling you how you can help bring the Yale Press podcast back into regular production. Stay tuned. Though Bill Clinton has been out of office since 2001, public fascination with him continues unabated. Many books about Clinton have been published in recent years, but shockingly, no single volume biography covers the full scope of Clinton's life from cradle to the present day, not even Clinton's own account, My Life. In A Complicated Man, The Life of Bill Clinton is Told by Those Who Know Him, historian Michael Takeup presents the first truly balanced book on one of our nation's most controversial and fascinating presidents. Through more than 150 chronologically arranged interviews with key figures, including Bob Dole, James Carville, and Tom Brokaw, among many others, A Complicated Man goes far beyond the well-worn party-line territories to capture the larger-than-life essence of Clinton, the man. Michael Takeoff is an independent scholar and oral historian whose writing has appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times. He's the author of Brave Men, Gentle Heroes, American Fathers and Sons in World War II and Vietnam. Stay tuned after the interview for more information about the return of this podcast, as well as information about the press. Please note that this interview was originally recorded as episode 25 of the Biography Podcast. Michael Takeoff, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the Biography Podcast today. Thank you. This is an oral history instead of what might be considered a traditional biography. Why did you want to tell Bill Clinton's story through the eyes of others? I think it it gives the biography uh, a more intimacy, um, a more immediacy. Uh, The format is is oral biography. 169 people tell the story of Bill Clinton's life. These are people from every stage of his life, from the cousin who took him to the Saturday afternoon westerns in Hope, Arkansas, when he was six years old, all the way through to four-star generals, cabinet members, members of Congress, Republicans, Democrats, some of his best friends, some of his worst enemies. I really do think it's the most intimate, intimate portrait of Bill Clinton to date, and also the um, most well-rounded. It really is a 360-degree view of our 42nd president. So how much cooperation was there from the Clinton camp? Because there are definitely people in this book you spoke with whom I doubt would have spoken to you if the Clintons had told them not to. Exactly. When you um, ask people, friends of Bill or prominent people in the administration, people who are still close to uh, the president and people who are still uh, very much uh, on his side, when you ask them for interview requests, the first thing they do is they call uh, President Clinton's office at the foundation and they say, can we talk to this guy? So I was brought in, uh, President Clinton's a spokesman at the time, uh, looked me over, took my temperature, and uh, examined me, and I guess decided that I was um, not just a sleaze merchant, um, and not just a scandal monger, and they sort of sent the word out to these people that it was okay to talk to me. They were very careful about um, about my having to be clear that it was not an authorized biography. It isn't. Uh, far from it. But um, they did sort of send the word out to people that, you know, they were free to talk to me if they wanted to. So one of the things that comes out of the book is that for all his really amazing intellectual and political gifts, 
the sense is the Clinton presidency ended really up punching below its weight. Here is this this man who could do so much, and yet there really isn't a single defining piece of legislation, either domestic legislation or diplomatic accomplishments, which is kind of odd that that's kind of a, a, a meme that comes out because a lot happened during his presidency. Do you agree with this assessment that he that the Clinton presidency ended up, I guess, as I said, punching below its weight? I think so. I think it's odd to speak of a person who was a governor of a state for 12 years, who was president of the United States for eight years, to speak of that person as an underachiever. But with Bill Clinton, there is the feeling that there's something missing, because he was so talented, an amazing, phenomenal intellect, and such um, such a gifted way that he can relate to ordinary people. Uh, his people skills are, are also just uh, really off the charts, really not seen in, in very many mortals at all. Um, there's a sense there should have been something more. This feeling actually goes back to Arkansas. There's a reporter in the book, and, and some of the best, uh, uh, I think, comments in the book come from uh, Arkansans and particularly from these reporters in Arkansas. These people knew Bill Clinton before he was attached to the, uh, all the trappings of the presidency or even a presidential campaign, so they, they know him so well as a person. And um, a reporter in the book named Ernie Dumas, he's been called the dean of Arkansas political reporters, says that there was this feeling of disappointment even when he was governor. Um, and what he says is that, is that Clinton uh, led us to expect miracles, and all we got was modest good works. And as Dumas says, and as, as I will say too, I think that's true of him as president as well. Um, how much of that would you ascribe to his managerial style, which I think can charitably be called at some points a little haphazard? And how much of the fact that Unlike, say, a George W. Bush or a Barack Obama, who had momentous things happen to the country while they were on the presidency, they're really the era in which Bill Clinton, and I don't want to give short shrift to his time as governor of Arkansas, but it kind of applies there as well, but definitely his time as the president, that there wasn't really any crisis that could spring people into action like there was 9-11 or the credit crisis of 2008 for President Obama. Well, that's very true. Uh, first, to his managerial style, that got better as his uh, time in office um went on. He really did learn a lot. Uh, he also brought in some different people to help him manage. At the beginning, the, administ- the administration was hampered by his lack of uh, managerial and intellectual discipline. He'd have meetings that would go on hours and hours and hours uh, without coming to any resolution. He also wanted to have his finger in just about every pie. He, he is, as one person says in the book, um, this is from Tony Lake, the former National Security Advisor, the rap on Clinton is that he's never, re- never really cared about anything. What Lake says is that he never met anyone who cared about so many things. And so, as a result, he wanted to have this and this and this, and, and, you know, and, and a little of that and a little of something else, and wasn't able to really just focus on the one or two or three things um, that really would have um, helped him make his mark. So that's his managerial uh, style. But the other point that you bring up is also very important. He served at a time of relative quiet. It was after one war ended, the Cold War, and before another began, the War on Terror. Uh, the country was prosperous and happy. Uh, so there wasn't that chance to sort of leave his mark the way he might have had he served at a time of great national crisis, of war, depression. Um, those were the times his, his heroes served. And he looked to FDR, he looked to Lincoln as his models. He, he himself has spoken of his regret that he wasn't president at a time of, of great crisis. I think the question is, you know, would he have risen to such a crisis? I think he would have. I think you can look at uh, particularly the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, uh, when um, four days after Timothy McVeigh's bomb went off in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people, Clinton delivered this magnificent speech at the Oklahoma State Fair Arena, and it really did help 
the country sort of make sense of the tragedy, and it helped them give the country resolve to uh, fight people who would commit such acts. Uh, he really did, um, and, and by the way, that that um, that event was, I think, the beginning of his rehabilitation in the public mind after the 1994 uh, electoral disaster when the Democrats lost both the House and the Senate. So we'll never really know what would have, um, how we would have acted had he had to deal with a crisis of uh, greater and more sustained proportions. Uh, we just know that he served as kind of a competent steward of the nation's business between wars. He accomplished many things, but you know there wasn't that one great achievement. As you say, he tried twice. There was health care at the beginning of his administration. That failed. And he almost uh, he only came close to solving the Middle East conflict uh, toward the end of his administration. That also failed. So, uh, and again, as I say, there's this feeling that, you know, for all his talents and for all his accomplishments, there should have been more. Let's talk a little bit about people's visceral reactions to Bill Clinton, because he is alternately loved by many and hated with just as deep a passion. The yes, one of the lines out of this book that I loved was, and I'm not sure if it was Dick Armey, you'll have to, whoever said that that they couldn't understand that, you know, that there's this fight in the 90s about Bill Clinton, who was actually a child of the 50s, but everybody was portraying as a child of the 60s. Right. He keeps coming out of this book as, yeah, I mean, he, he certainly has prodigious appetites, but he's a 1950s kind of square policy wonk who just happens to have certain appetites. He's not really a hippie. And he, and I was curious, where do you think that, and you talk about this and other people do, where do you think that just visceral dislike of the Clintons comes from? Well, the, the, the quote you, ha- you uh, mentioned is from Peter King, a congressman from Long Island, very conservative Republican congressman, but a man who really likes Bill Clinton. Um, he opposed impeachment. He voted against impeachment. He uh, supported Bill Clinton. He worked with Bill Clinton on the, uh, on the issue of Northern Ireland, which I think is perhaps Bill Clinton's... Um, a shining achievement, actually, and his most unsung achievement. But um, there are, it's difficult to explain the antipathy toward Bill Clinton. Not, not, you know, not just the fact that people disagree with his policies, policies, but that there is this visceral hatred among, uh, not a majority of the American people, uh, not by any means. Uh, he's a popular man, but among a certain minority, and it, it's not an insignificant minority. Uh, there is this um, disgust, this hatred. For me, it was very difficult uh, to define. I'm not sure if I ever got a good answer, but there are there are a few possibilities. One, and this is uh, mentioned by Leon Panetta, who served as Bill Clinton's chief of staff, among other things. He says Bill Clinton is the kind of guy who would uh, never go to class, never study for, never study, uh, never uh, crack his books, and uh, you know, on the day of the exam, he'd ace it, uh, apparently with you know no effort at all. And some people just couldn't, um, just resented the fact that everything came so easy to him. Another thing is that uh, many many Republicans, uh, I think, were angry that he uh, appropriated their issues. Think of of the issues that had been Republican issues. Um, Bill Clinton took action on all of them. He made them issues uh, of his and of uh, and Democratic issues: fiscal responsibility, crime, uh, welfare reform. Uh, that's that's another part of it. Uh, another thing, though, is that people see him as well as unreliable. There's this. Uh, a remarkable phenomenon, and people in Arkansas talked about this, and there have been all kinds of explanations for it, but a group of people will go in and speak to Bill Clinton about an issue. They'll come out of the meeting and they'll say, think, well, he agrees with us. He's going to do what we want him to. The next day, a group of people will go in, talk to him about the same issue, but with an entirely different uh, point of view. They'll come out thinking, he agrees with us. 
he's going to do what we want him to. That leads to a lot of disappointment and a lot of anger. Uh, finally, uh, I think it, it relates to this business about the, the 60s and the 50s. He really was very much uh, kind of an establishment guy. When he talked about wanting to preserve his political viability, um, when he uh, said that in that famous draft letter to the, the colonel who had, um, who, uh, had gotten him into that, had accepted him into that ROTC program at the University of Arkansas, he was really saying he wanted to go and be part of the establishment. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, he, he really was talking about going home and being governor of Arkansas. That's what he had in mind, and perhaps being, uh, being president. Uh, nonetheless, because of, and this has something to do with his well-known um, um, sexual uh, morals, uh, and with the fact that he admitted to smoking marijuana, even though he said he never inhaled, and by the way, I believe that he didn't. Um, it has to do with the fact that he's been photographed with long hair and a beard at, at law school. Uh, many people, the Republican base in particular, uh, did identify him with all the changes they saw in society, that date back to the 60s, changes that they really uh, couldn't stand. There's a great quote in the book from Barney Frank, the uh, liberal congressman from Massachusetts. He says, people on the right, these, these people in the Republican base, uh, feel that they went to sleep in a Norman Rockwell painting and woke up in a Bosch triptych. <laughs> and they look at Bill Clinton, they look at Bill and Hillary as kind of wizards who had enchanted, as he said, enchanted America off its moorings. And so it's not that they just wanted to impeach him. They wanted to drive a stake through his heart. How deeply did the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Itzhak Rabin affect President Clinton? Oh, very, very much. Um, Rabin was, you know, some have said that he was a father figure to Bill Clinton. Remember, Bill Clinton really did not have a father. His birth father died while Bill Clinton was in utero. And his stepfather, well, it was a problematic relationship. Uh, I don't think he was the monster that he's been portrayed in, in various accounts. But, um, you know, he was an alcoholic. He did abuse Bill Clinton's mother. Um, so Bill Clinton really didn't have a father. So perhaps Rabin was kind of a father figure, although um, one person in the book, a, a, a Middle East negotiator at the time, a man named Dennis Ross, uh, says he describes it um, his relationship as not, not, not as sort of father and son, but that Clinton uh, saw Rabin as somehow the embodiment of virtue. He saw him as the representative of the Israeli state, a man who had um, been a pioneer, a man who had been a warrior and then uh, went on to make peace. Uh, Clinton felt very much personally invested in the relationship with Rabin. What he said to Rabin, he said, if you take these risks um, uh, to make peace, I'll support you. I'll do everything I can. And it really struck Clinton, it really haunted him that Rabin had taken these risks and he had paid the ultimate price. And it really did spur Clinton on to... to um, continue his work at the, at the uh, Middle East peace process. It, you know, it's interesting. At the end of the administration, Clinton is trying frantically to keep the process alive. They were the, the so-called Clinton idea. This was after Camp David. People know about Camp David, but in the middle of uh, the year 2000. But in December, this is just weeks before Bill Clinton was leaving office, he read what were called the Clinton ideas. This is a pretty detailed plan for the resolution of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, Israel agreed to agree to these um, agreed to the solution. Um, Arafat just you know in January in January of 2001. This is about two weeks before Bill Clinton's leaving office. Was sitting in the Oval Office and said no. 
Arafat had said no so many times, and yet Clinton, even at that time, even after it, it was clear to just about everyone that this wasn't going to happen, he was still prepared to send people to the Middle East. He was prepared to go to the Middle East himself um, just to salvage the process. And I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, doing this even after it was apparent it wasn't going to do any good. A lot of it did have to do with, I think, the debt he felt he owed to uh, Rabin. Hillary Clinton will be 69 in 2016. Yes. And my belief is that she still very much wants to be president. I guess the question that came to me while I was reading this book is, did you do any beginning spade work on her oral history while working on his? <laughs> uh, no, I haven't. Uh, first of all, Hillary, I think, is much more guarded in the way she treats the press. Uh, it would be harder to, to get at Hillary Clinton, to get at people close to her. Second, to me, Hillary just isn't, isn't as interesting a character. Um, you know, this isn't, isn't uh, to say this is good or bad about her, but she, she really doesn't have that same uh, range of, of sort of talents and emotions and, and characteristics that you find with Bill. I mean, Bill Clinton is so, he, he's so phenomenally talented, and he's also so phenomenally flawed. Um, you know, there's something so shining and brilliant about his life, but also something so messy. And I think those are the qualities that make him a fascinating character for a biography. Uh, Hillary, to me, just is, is, is just not as interesting. This is a book about Bill Clinton, not about Barack Obama. But it's hard not to notice the parallels between President Clinton's situation after the 94 midterms and President Obama's situation right now. Uh, which side do you think has more to learn from this book, the Obama White House or the Republican leadership in Congress right now? Well, they both have a lot to learn. The Obama White House should definitely look at the example uh, of, of Bill Clinton. During the first two years of Bill Clinton's presidency, the Republicans, the Republicans were very successful at defining him as a man outside of the mainstream. Um, they talked about issues like gays in the military, gun control, taxes, health care. Uh, this should sound familiar to people <laughs> watching the news today. Uh, once President Clinton lost that election, once the Democrats lost that election in the fall of 94, he and his advisors set out to turn the tables on the Republicans. So right away they started uh, calling the Republicans by the words radical and extreme. And this went on day after day. And it really did, did stick. They were able to depict the Republicans as a band of radical ideologues intent on knocking down the underpinnings of middle-class American life and in portraying Bill Clinton as the only thing standing in their way. And it worked. When the sh government shut down in the fall of 95, uh, the public blamed Newt Gingrich. When President Clinton ran against Bob Dole in 96, they, it was very simple. They tied Gingrich around Dole's neck, and that was that. Uh, you look at the situation today, uh, again, the Republicans have been, were very successful those first two years in, in depicting Barack Obama as a man outside, man out of touch with mainstream America, as a creature of the elites. Uh, they talked very much about health care. Uh, and uh, taxes, those are a couple of the big issues. Gays in the mili military is another wedge issue that's come up recently. And, of course, there are the cultural issues. Uh, there were cultural issues in President Clinton's time. Uh, there was particularly that uh, $200 haircut that he got at Los Angeles Airport. That was a big mistake. Uh, with Barack Obama, it's, uh, frankly, it's, it's tinged with the color of his skin. I don't think you can get around it, this business of uh, his uh, place of birth and his religion. I think those are... Um, uh, sort of uh, substitutes for, for really saying what people are really thinking, which is that, you know, there is a black man in charge of the United States, and somehow, you know, this offends us. This is the way a lot of people think. Uh, so I think Barack Obama should try to make the same uh, turn. He, he should really 
he has to depict the Republicans as people out to somehow uh, knock down what what sustains us as Americans or as middle class Americans. You know, either the health care plan I think is very instructive. What's going on with the health care plan right now? In 1995, in October, uh, Newt Gingrich said that he expected Medicare to quote wither on the vine. Now, right away, he tried to walk it back. He realized it was a, a flagrant political blunder. He tried to say that he was talking not about the program itself, but at a, at a, about an agency involved with the Medicare's administration. Bill Clinton didn't say, oh, well, now I understand what you've, you, you meant. I won't bring it up. No, he, he hit him over the head with it. He, he made the words famous. Right now, you've got um, the Republican Party that wants to uh, completely repeal what they call Obamacare. Now, there are unpopular parts of the bill with the public, but there are some that I think the public, if they really were aware of it, and I don't think they are, I think Obama's been, has failed in this regard, but if people understood that the Republicans wanted to um, repeal, for instance, the provision that allows, uh, that prevents uh, insurance companies from uh, denying coverage to children because of pre-existing conditions. If people knew that, uh, I think Obama could certainly make some political hay off of this idea that they want to repeal everything. What he has to do is not let the Republicans walk back this, this notion of repeal. He can't let them say, oh, now I understand you really didn't mean it when you said you wanted to repeal everything. Uh, so I won't point out the fact that you also want to repeal this, this provision that will be very popular with people. No, he has to be aggressive. Uh, one thing about Bill Clinton is that in 95, he really was aggressive. He and his people waged a very substantial campaign uh, to demonize Gingrich, and it was successful. But it took work day after day after day. Obama needs to do that. So, but on the Republican side, and this is just something that came to me while you were making that, making that statement, you know, Gingrich... For all of his positives, and it, and it does come out that Gingrich and, and Clinton do have a respect for one another. Yes, they do. If you think about John Boehner, I, mean, I wonder to the degree how much, and this is getting slightly off the, I will bring it back to Clinton, but how much that energy that in 95 and 94 was really driven by Newt Gingrich and his really pugnacious attitude, and we're going to go in there and we're going to change it because we've got this big mandate. About the degree to which maybe John Boehner and the current Republican leadership learn, it's like, okay, we can't pull a Gingrich like this. We can't go that far. But the fact that there's all that Tea Party energy, which in some ways is kind of a gratuitous version of the same energy that Gingrich bought, is going to continue to push them to be Gingrichian, even though they might have read your book and said, look, we can't do this again because look what happened to Clinton and Gingrich back in the 90s. Right. I think it remains to be seen how skillful an operator uh, John Boehner is. We really don't know much about him. Uh, you know, we've seen him a bit the last couple of years, but he now is in a very different position. He's, we'll see if he can rise to the occasion. I do think uh, Boehner has uh, got a better He's, he's, he's more cautious than Gingrich. Gingrich really did not have an editing function between brain and mouth. So he would say just off-the-wall things, and, and people just didn't like him. He would go on TV. The more, the more people saw of him, really the less they liked him. He just does not have a pleasing personality. Uh, we'll see with what happens with, with uh, Boehner. But he does have, look, the Republican Party is sort of riding the tiger of the Tea Party right now. I think it was just uh, uh, yesterday. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the first week in January. Um, he was asked by Brian Williams. Oh, I know. It was the first day, in fact, that he would became Speaker of the House. He was asked by Brian Williams of NBC News if he was going to tell his uh, people uh, in his caucus, Republicans in Congress, to lay off this business about, you know, Obama's 
uh, citizenship. And, and Boehner said, look, I believe that he was born in, in Hawaii and that he's a citizen, but I'm not going to tell people what to do. And I think that really does encapsulate his dilemma right now. People in the country, and let's remember, people who decide elections are the people in the middle. We, we can assume that the Republicans will get 40%, the Democrats will get 40%, maybe a little more on each side. The people in the middle will decide the election. People are, are looking for solutions in Washington. They're really looking for jobs. They're looking for the economy to be uh, rehabilitated. They're not interested, I don't think, in, uh, you know, the, the people in the middle are not interested in hearing any more about Obama's birth certificate. But he is really dependent There's a, on, on this, new class of, um, this new class of Tea Party people. The freshman class in, uh, in Washington, in the House of Representatives, there are some 40 members of the Tea Party, or 40 people who owe their elections to the Tea Party. These people uh, see Obama as this sort of embodiment of evil. They look at him as a tyrant. He's a fascist. He's a communist. He's a Muslim. He's this. He's that. How can you compromise with a man like that? But Boehner in order to sort of appeal to the middle of the country, it's going to have to be seen as getting things done. It's a very difficult uh, dilemma for him. We'll see how he manages it. So finally, uh, biographers live with their topics for a while, uh, and you probably lived with Bill Clinton quite a while putting this book together. Oh, yes. Have your own views on Bill Clinton changed since you've written this book? I think it really, I, I, you know, it's funny. I think I've, I've gotten a greater respect for him, but also sort of a greater... I, I, annoyance with him and a, a greater a disappointment. Um, you know, we all know Bill Clinton is smart. I don't think I really knew how smart he, he is. Uh, there's a great scene in the book. I don't know if you read, you know, uh, noted this one. He can receive a detailed policy briefing at the same time that he's reading a book, reading a newspaper, doing a crossword puzzle. And at the end of the briefing, he'll ask the question that shows not only that he heard every word, but that he understands the subject as well as or better than the, the expert giving the briefing. Um, you know, there are gregarious people in the world. Well, Bill Clinton knows more people, knows more about more people, more loves being with people than anyone in the world. And then, you know, there are reckless people in the world. Look, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton risked the, in, the most powerful office on earth for the sake of 10 instances of oral sex with an intern half his age. So I think what I found from doing the book is just sort of the intensity and the, the magnitude um, of Bill Clinton's virtues and his flaws. He has this huge, huge personality, and that's what makes him so fascinating. I think that accounts for, uh, uh, is another factor in the public's enduring affection for him. They see these, these virtues and these flaws, and they can see themselves in it. Look, we all know people who, are, who try to do the right thing but sometimes make big mistakes. We know smart people who do stupid things. We know people who give in to temptations, food, sex, temptations they know they should resist. Um, I think when we look at Bill Clinton, we see ourselves, we see ourselves in him. I think this is, this is really why people still relate to him. There was recently a poll uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago where he was pronounced the most popular politician in America, and that's the amazing thing. No matter how many times he disappoints us, uh, no matter how many times we, we've seen him counted out, he always seems to rise again. He always seems to come back. Um, you know, if his health holds out, I think he's going to be very much a part of the American scene for a long time. Michael Takeoff, the author of A Complicated Man, The Life of Bill Clinton, is told by those who know him. Thanks so much for being on the Biography Podcast today. Thank you. Now then about the show. Those of you who have kept your subscriptions active know that it has been a while since we have posted a new show. 
We're testing out this episode to see if interest is still there for regular content created by the press. Needless to say, we really want to hear from you. If you want to comment, rate, or review the show, you have quite a few options. You can go to the Yale University Press page on Facebook, www.facebook.com backslash Yale Press, and comment there. And if you haven't already done so, take a moment and join the page. You can go to the Yale Press podcast page on iTunes and either rate or review the show. There's always email, yale.press at gmail.com. If you just want to know what's going on with the press on a consistent basis, you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at Yale Press. And don't forget our website, www.yalebooks.com, where you can find out just about everything about Yale University Press that you could ever want to know. Catalog information, upcoming books, blogs, current sales. Really, it just boggles the mind. And that's it for this episode. The executive producer of the Yale Press podcast is Ivan Lett, and my name is Chris Gondek. I'm the producer and host of the show. Thanks for listening. I hope to speak to you again in the very near future. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Yale Press podcast. The Yale Press Podcast is a production of Heron and Crane. For more information about the show, go to www.yalebooks.com or www.heronandcrane.com.